The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, let's, uh, let's take a second to, uh, to pray, and we're going to get into the book of John, this uh, fantastic, amazing story of Jesus, this biography by probably the last living uh, apostle at the time when this was written. So uh, join me in a posture of prayer. Uh, Father, I, I thank you for the, just the fun that we can have and uh, to be able to get together and, and experience some of the things that are out there in culture that gives us an idea of what's happening. But you made it very clear that in the end, ultimately, you are true truth. You are reality. And as we look through this story, this particular section and claim of Jesus to be the light of the world, what I'm asking you to do for, for me and my friends is to help us understand and really embrace and live into this reality that you are the light. So whenever you read the wilderness or the Judean wilderness in your scriptures, you just think desert, you know, um, Acton, Adelaide Valley, Lancaster, um, you know, parts of the 909 out there, desert, you know, nothing to do. And uh, at any rate, um, and, and so... Uh, so he connects himself and the story to, to Moses, and, um, and some of the people also felt that vibe as well. That's why in some cases they thought he was, quote, that prophet. And whenever you read that in the book of John, you know, what, what's being said there is Moses, before he passed away, and he's giving directions in the book of Deuteronomy, which means the second law, you might say, or the retelling. Um, he tells folks, hey, look, in Deuteronomy uh, eighteen fifteen, I believe it is, he says, hey, there's another prophet coming like me. You know, when he shows up, you need to really listen to him. And so, uh, in fact, when, when John was baptized, and one of the things they asked him, I said, are, are you the Messiah? No, are you that prophet? And he would say, no. And, and, and so, but the folks who were fed at this miracle thinking, were thinking, man, this, maybe this is that prophet. This is what it was referring to. What Moses had talked about, that someone was coming that would be like him. And so, here's Jesus feeding people or bringing food in a desert experience like Moses had done. At any rate, so, but what we're going to go to right now is in John chapter 7, verse 37 through 38. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen behind me. And here's what it says. Um, this is speaking of the a feast or the celebration of tents, or in your Bible, it'll say tabernacles. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said... Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, let me, let me stop here. I want to paint a picture. I think, hopefully behind me, I'm going to show you how mystical I am. There should be an image of a light bulb in a hand. Close, right? Okay, now it is the eight of diamonds. Now, so right now there's a... <laughs> you don't have to be clever to do this. I prove it every Sunday. This is a powerful, powerful image, and I hope I can take you there mentally. So uh, if you picture the, the temple court, the campus, we're looking at about three to five football fields. It is huge. It's massive. Herod, uh, one of the king's governors in, in the south of Israel, he was, he was a horrible, horrible human being. But, uh, but that man knew how to build. Uh, from Masada to his palace to this temple court. And he was looking to gain the uh, favor of, of the people he was ruling. All right. <clears throat> You know, what would you need in a desert? Water, right. Clever group. And, and so Moses is instructed to, to speak to the rock or a rock, and water would come out of it. Pretty amazing, right? So here was God, even though this seems to be this punishment, 
you could say maybe a death march, right? He still provided food for them, their clothing, and their water. On the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, tents, booths, by the way, it's still celebrated. When priests would dip into a pool of water there at the temple court, Siloam, uh, I think it's pronounced, I'm probably butchering that, but that's not critical. It does mean scent in Hebrew, though. They'd have these huge golden pitchers of water, and they would, you know, pour it out over a rock there on, on the temple court to commemorate what God had done for them. And it's at this moment, John points out, that Jesus yells out in a huge voice, you know, I'm the water. I give life. You're commemorating, you're honoring something that is great, that's awesome, but I, I'm really the guy. I'm the one that actually provides life and thirst. And, and you know, I mean, it, you, know what, you know what it would be like? It would be like one of you going to um, downtown, one of the beautiful bank buildings, and saying, this is not wealth, I'm true wealth, at the top of your voice. And, you know, you'd be down on the ground, put in submission and cuffs, and taken away immediately. So that's, that's the feel of it. That's how, you know, and you know how when someone acts out loudly in a place, you know, you don't want to look for fear that they'll make you the target, you know, <laughs> they'll talk to you, right? Like in an elevator, you never speak to someone in an elevator because you might engage in a conversation with a stranger and be all creepy and weird. By the way, you know what I love doing in elevators? When you step in, don't turn around. <laughs> Facebook me. Hi, I'm Octavio. <laughs> now, this story of, of the rock and the water is found in Numbers chapter 20. We're not going to turn there, but if you're making a note in your Bible about this, this is where you would find it. Maybe in some of your study Bibles, it'll already have a reference to it. And so, so that goes on. And, and so in this particular story about the light of, uh, the, light of the world, there's, there's actually two very powerful images here that Jesus utilizes during this festival or celebration of the tabernacles, the booths, the tents. And one of the ways that this was celebrated, um, and you have to picture this, <clears throat> throughout Israel and, and Jerusalem, right? This Jerusalem, rather. People would set up little uh, tents on their homes out of palm trees. And... Um, uh, those of you who maybe have gone to third world countries, you've seen some of the housing, or you have more of a box and a flat top, right? And on the top of the house ends up being like another living area, patio sort of thing, right? Well, it's, that's not too far from what it's like at that moment, at that time. And so people would put up little tents and booths and live in there outside and experience, you know, the daylight. And, and part of it was also to, as, if you were, as you were living outside on top of your house and looking at the stars and appreciating all that God had done, you know, your, your family and kids, you would talk about it. And so God helps people to remember his kindness and his goodness by setting up physical environments for them to have conversations for it. Because he treats us holistically, right? So at the temple, you would walk in and maybe you would hear the, you would hear the sound of choir singing, choirs whose, whose rotation schedule, all that was done there was set up by King David at one time, music that he wrote. You would smell the beautiful incense that was a metaphor for prayers rising up to God. You would see the magnificent embroidery and the gold. And, 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 you know, this, that the temple, I mean, first of all, you couldn't get to it. You, you, would, you would be as far as here maybe to, to, probably to where actual Greenleaf is. But it's about two to three stories high. Magnificent. Marble. 
gold. In fact, uh, uh, I forget which historian speaks of it, that when the sun would hit it, it would be glaring because it was gold covered, what Herod did. And this is some of the stuff he we worked out. So God speaking and, and it helping us experience him holistically from our sight, from our eyes to our nose, and, and even in, in, in some of the sacrifices uh, that you would offer, some of the animals you would bring to being for your sacrifice, some of it, some of you know, was given back to you to eat with the priests. And it was called a fellowship offering. You know, and it was to signify that God is saying, I'm not mad at you. We're friends. We're eating together. And to think of how important it was to eat with somebody in the Middle East. You know, you're saying something about the food that's nourishing you is nourishing me. We're connected. And so you, could, you can imagine the sort of image that God was trying to get to these people. That the food that you're, you're sharing with me connects us. It's very powerful. But that's when Jesus says, I'm, I'm the living water, not this. But it gets weirder. Now, we go to John chapter 8. We're going to jump down to verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here are you appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from. And where I'm going. But you have no idea where I'm from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Why? Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. In other words, uh, in in a court proceeding, any kind of uh, uh, civil legal action, right? You had to have two witnesses to an event for it to be considered valid. You couldn't have, no, you couldn't have just one. So Jesus is saying, what he's going to say here in just a moment is that I'm one. Verse 18. I am one who testifies for myself. But here's the other witness for me. It's the father who sent me. Then they asked him, where's your, where's your father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would also know my, you would know my father also. He spoke these things while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Let me stop here. This is near the treasury. This is what he's talking about, which is near the court of the women. So on this campus, um, I'm not going to paint a picture here. All right. Let's just say this is the campus. Um, the, <laughs> it's awful. Court of the women. Court of the Gentiles, court of the animals. Pretty much the same place. And um, Jesus is speaking near the court of the women. Yet no one sees them. Then in verse 20, because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, once more Jesus said to them, I am going away, you'll look for me, and you'll die in your sin. Because where I go, you cannot come. Well, this made the Jews ask, well, will he kill himself? Is that what he says? Where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you're from below. I'm from above. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you don't believe that I'm he. You will indeed die in your sins. Well, who are you? Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. Now, they didn't understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, look, here's the turning point. Here's where you're going to finally get it, if you're going to get it. 
When you have lifted up the Son of Man, let me, let me stop here for just a quick second. Understand this, when, what he's saying here is when you lift up the Messiah, when you lift up your Deliverer, when you lift up your Savior, but in their head, the Messiah, Savior, you know, was a political leader who would be like King David and throw out the uh, um, occupying army. This is something that was so important to the folks living at that time. And I, I've said before, to, to begin to appreciate that feeling, um, you know, some of you who are keeping up with the news in the Middle East, you know how uh, a foreign army right now curling some of these countries, it's just, it's just like a daily insult to them, right? Now, this is not a, a, a commentary regarding the rightness or the wrongness of that war and that, and that, that action there. I'm just telling you, the folks, some of the folks who are there view the foreign armies and foreign nations in their land as a daily, constant humiliation, all right? So Jesus is saying here, when you lift up that deliverer, which would be a crucifixion, execution, and you kind of feel what, what kind of confusion that must have raised in their head when he's saying this. Back to verse 27. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, which is the title for Messiah, then you'll know that I am he and that I do nothing of my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do what pleases him. And even as he spoke, people believed in him. I find that amazing that um, the, the compelling nature of his character, of his integrity, the force of who he was, his words, the truthfulness, that it made sense. And some folks are saying, you know what? I'll, I'm going with this. Now, for those of us who are under the delusion that it would have been easier to believe in Jesus at that time than right now, what is this, 2011? Boy, I'm sharp. Um, that, boy, you know, if I could have been there, then I could have believed. No. No. Can you I mean, it, it, he, Isaiah says nothing unusual about this guy. Nothing. He wasn't even compelling, uh, physically attractive in a way. Nothing. In fact, after three years, when he gets, when he's uh, uh, to be arrested in a garden that folks know on a regular basis he's going to go to a place to pray. They knew that about him. They had no idea what he looked like. And that's why Judas was necessary, in a way, to point him out. And we know how he pointed him out. Hey, Rabbi, good to see you. So while he's speaking and he's telling folks here, this is where it's going to be a turning point for some of you, is when I'm finally executed. Some folks listening there are saying, wow, he is the guy. And they threw their head into that. They followed it. So this is the second of two images at the same festival, a festival of tabernacles or, or a tents. And the reason why this is a very powerful metaphor is for this reason. And so now, as, you, um, as we looked at the morning, sort of the water being thrown out, you know, for people to have water, this is in the evening, I believe, even though John doesn't exactly say it. And here's why I, t- here's why I say this. If you know the story from, new, from Numbers, you know that one of the other things that God did for folks, oh, what, what did he do for them at night? Some of the who, who've read the Bible, read the story in the wilderness, fire, right, column of fire. And that column of fire during the day would be a what? A cloud, right? So you have, you know, shade, comfort from heat. But at night you have illumination so they can still keep moving. Um, you know, uh, they would light their way. And in the scripture, what it says was, is that um, when, when the cloud moved, they moved with it. When it stopped, they stopped. When the fire column moved, they moved with it. When it stopped, that's when they would stop, so... Because of the Feast of Tabernacles was about commemorating that time in the wilderness, um, what would happen in the evening 
is these magnificently huge, huge torches would be lit. You know, and um, uh, I have an unnatural fondness for fire as a child, you know. Um, I would hear voices, you know, burn it, burn it all down. <laughs> okay. And um, and whenever my kids were tired of a toy, you throwing that toy away? Yeah. Let's go burn it. <laughs> I was the best dad ever. Barbies, stuffed animals, pets. It didn't matter. So, um, no, no. I wouldn't burn a Barbie. So, at any rate... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, back to this. So, ah, it's just been so powerful. So, at that temple area, the court of the women, near the treasury, um, you would light these torches. A priest would come out, and you know, in, in a very solemn, important moment, to commemorate the light and that fire column from their story of traveling, uh, wandering in the wilderness, wandering in the desert. And I, I, I don't know, I just imagine this, this huge ignite, these magnificent torches that history apparently pointed out actually cast an amber light or glow, I mean broadly across the city, everywhere. So it's bright. I mean, it's a big torch, torches. And so as I'm thinking about this story further, and it doesn't take much to imagine this, you probably can hear the crackling of the fire. Maybe the prayers of people. Maybe some singers. There might have been some music that accompanied this moment. And near a place where, um, near a very significant area where women were given, I mean, it it just didn't, (laughs) not valued as men were. That's where Jesus chooses to declare this is not it. I'm the light of the world. In a loud voice. Very clearly. And he points out, I think, um, so many other things about this that, maybe just to unwrap it, let me, let me read some of this to you. And actually, in this particular claim that he makes of himself, I, I think I told you that in this, you know, the ten weeks we'll be here, we're, we're looking at seven I am statements. But in this one of I am the light of the world, he makes seven statements further. In verse 12, that I am the light of the world. Verse 16, I am not alone, sent by my father. Verse 18, I am the one with my father. Verse 23, I'm from above. Verse 24, I'm not of this world. Verse 24 and 28, I am the Messiah. And then in the end of that chapter, 858, you know, it culminates with this I am. He makes it very clear, draws a line in the sand. I'm actually God. Now, come on. This is why I'm telling you. This would not have been very easy to swallow. Looking at a man that you knew in the, from the community. In fact, and you can pick this up in John. When some of the Pharisees and others ask, we know who our father is, you know. There's this hint that Mary was considered a bit of a floozy. We know who our father is. We know the talk about you. We know that after the fact that you didn't have a wedding, that you popped up six months, came a little early 
You weren't exactly a preemie either. You know, remember that when Mary said yes to this whole thing, she was saying a lot. If there was a first disciple or first believer or follower of Jesus, it was his mom. She would always have to live with that reputation, the talk, the gossip in town. Um, Wouldn't have had a wedding. There wouldn't have been that celebration. So I, I don't know. I think it's significant that what Jesus does here by the court of the women. And he points, like I mentioned in verse 28, as a turning point for many people was going to be when he's executed. You know what's really strange to me? How many of you remember that when you read the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, what happened when he died? And there's a, a few things. Anybody, just, you can just shout it out. Because I don't know. No, I'm just shout it out in the... Earthquake, right? Okay, big deal. What? The curtain, yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. Uh, so just, if you were in the, uh, the temple, if you got in, you, you couldn't. But if you did, you know, there was these uh, separate chambers. And separating you from the Ark of the Covenant, we also Raiders of the Lost Ark, so we know what it looked like. <laughs> Three to five inches thick, gorgeously embroidered uh, cloth. And guess what was embroidered on there? The universe, stars, as it was described by a local historian at the time. Some guy was saying, I am the center of everything right here, you know, beautiful. What happened? Torn from top to bottom, very significant. A metaphor, not from the bottom up. What, what was the creepiest thing that happened when Jesus died? Come on. People came back from the dead when he resurrected. Now, this, you know, this is one of those things where, you know how some of you, if you're, you know, maybe you're, you're testing the waters of being a follower of Jesus. You go, well, this is kind of compelling. I see the way some of you live. There's a certain sort of clarity you have that I don't. A certain sort of light, pun intended, that I don't have. But then you read the stories of Jesus and you go, well, I don't know if I can get there. I'll give you a suggestion and you can do what you want with it. But you should follow it because I'm right. Um, but uh, well, at least I have the microphone. I- I'm going to suggest this. And uh, you, know, you can decide to do with it what you want. I would tell you that if the life of Jesus is compelling, take it. And if you cannot accept everything at this point, that's okay. You should believe in it when you, when you know you need to, not because you have to. When you have to do something regarding Christ, there's this deadness that becomes a, a religion that is soul-killing and soul-numbing. Um, it's, it's, um, because I think everything's relational, I understand it in terms of, of loving some other person. When you have to do something because you're supposed to you know, be that to somebody, it, it, it is, there's no joy, there's no pleasure, it doesn't bring life. But when you do those things out of a heart that actually loves, it's liberating, it's energizing. And, and um, here's what I think also. Uh, you know, I think God's okay if you can't buy it all at one time. All right? You know, words, he's not offended by that or put off. So let, let, me, let me ask some questions as we're uh, getting ready to close in a few moments. The, the people coming back from the dead when he resurrected, that, that craziness, I mean, when he died, all that... See, this is one of those moments where you have to decide, 
is that true or not true? Because it can't be sort of true. <laughs> they could have maybe just like got up to the door and then died again. You know, they, 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 <laughs> they had, I, that is one of the strangest stories to me about Jesus' execution of all of them. I mean, the curtain thing, okay, I can go with that. The earthquake, yeah, okay. People coming back, you know. And, you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, but don't you almost think like of zombies at some level? Like they weren't sort of really alive, you know, because, uh, you, know, you know, something. Mikael, what are you doing? Oh, hey, you know, I mean, I don't know. What was that like? What, I mean, but if you take it, wow, if you go to the first step, as it being a true event, can you imagine the stories those people told? So what was it like? And, 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 and why them? Were they followers? Why not all of them? Lazarus finally was not, not a member of a, of a unique club anymore either. You know? Imagine that small group. We died and came back. Can I join? Nope. <laughs> Only if we kill you first, then you come back? Yes. That would have been a cool t-shirt. John chapter 9. The story continues. As I've told you before, every time he makes a statement, then there'll be an action to back it up. Chapter 9. Um, as he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. Now listen to this argument. Listen to this conversation. So his students, his disciples, those closest to him, asked him. Because you know, in their head, there had to be a cause and effect. This is exactly how it worked. There was nothing that didn't happen without a cause and effect. And since, in many cases, this is where people felt that you experienced God's ultimate reward or ultimate punishment, somebody in distress had to be bad. And, and what they think of this, of God, is, is shocking here. Rabbi, so who blew it? Who sinned? Who was awful? This, this man or his parents? Now think of the injustice that they're asking here. That God would punish somebody else, that God's going to punish me for Leo's crimes. Leo's shortcomings. Because God did do that, but it was Christ, correct? <clears throat> that he was born blind. And then Jesus says, well, well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Because night's coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Look where he is going to tell him to go wash. Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the pool where folks and during the Feast of the Tabernacles would pull water out to commemorate God's uh, watering people, you know, providing water in the desert. Now, I, okay, I'm trying to put myself in the blind man's shoes, you know. So go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so, I mean, where is it? I mean, right, he's blind. <laughs> don't, don't hate me. I mean, I'm just, isn't there some humor in the story, right? Um, so somebody, his friends or family members or people who helped him out had to go take him. And then, so what did Rabbi say? What did Jeshua say? He said to go, you know, rinse it all out. Awesome. And, you know, which one? The first time the water hit? The second time? And the first thing he sees is, you know, the water and his hands. That's, I mean, just the emotion of it at all. And then he, he goes home seeing, you know, I don't know, did he have brown eyes, blue eyes, green eyes? I don't know. And he tells, 
Then I think in terms of that he finally, I don't know, he was born blind. How do you process images? He sees his parents, his brother and sisters, um, people, period, for the first time. Now, isn't there a metaphor possibly for us that when God illumines our soul, we actually see people for the first time for who they are, made in the image of God? Most of the stuff that we do is because we look at people as less than human. Be honest. When you lie to somebody, what you're saying is you're not worth me telling the truth. When you break your promise to somebody, I do it, I'm going to be there for sure, I promise, I promise. And then you don't show up. And you might even have a legitimate excuse like, you know, you didn't want to. <laughs> what you're saying is that, John, you're not worth me keeping my word to you. Is this possibly what Jesus meant when he said, let your yay be yay, but your nay be nay? When he says, hey man, you know what? Um, when you live with people, because Jesus said, uh, he's not doing away with the law. That he fulfills it. And he asks us to live beyond it. You know, don't rip people off. Don't lie to them. Don't, you know, here's another rule to get along. Don't sleep with their wives. Your buddies love. Because in, I think it's the ninth commandment, but not coveting. In the end, it's because we want everything we don't have that it causes all the other nine or ten commandments to be required. And maybe like some of you, uh, you know, there were times when I was such a thief that I could even stand having somebody who had love. I had to take that from them. So what are we saying? You're not worth having that. And what am I saying about that woman? You're just one step above self-stimulation. You see? You follow? I think if there's um, a benefit or the, the first sort of Thing that you're going to experience when you experience the nation of God. Look, you know, if, if you're thinking in terms of, well, I get to go to heaven, awesome, you do. I get my crimes forgiven, awesome, you do. Um, I get clarity and sanity, awesome, you do. But here's, here, here's what I think is the first, first expression of when God illumines your soul, you finally see people for the first time. You know, there, there, I had a conversation with a friend of mine about... Um, I have pets. Um, they're both worthless. They, they do nothing of value. I don't even think they have self-awareness. And uh, so I'm not a hater of pets and pet owners. But I will point this out on myself and tell me if you're with me in this. There's something perverse about us. That we can see um, somebody in distress, maybe in our immediate family, a spouse, uh, um, someone in the street who's not functioning at a high level at all. And we might even just think, I wonder what they did. Right? I'm like Jesus' disciples. You see a stray dog on the street and you actually want to stop to try to take care of it. Now, there's something weird about that. That we could be moved for compassion for an animal, which I believe still has a soul. But I know this is not made in the image of God. And that God did not send his son Christ 
well, not theologically, it was the entire world, so I'm going to have to include the pets. But the, the highest creation, the, what the value that God has on humanity, we flip it. That's an indication of us being in darkness. We were separated from God. We're separated from ourselves. We are separated from each other. And the first expression of that coming together is when he says, I am the light of the world, and we experience that. So here's the question. Maybe you're not a follower. And I commend you for being brave enough to walk in here. That if you're sensing some gap, something missing, it might be this illumination. And one of the first things you're going to experience is, is connection back with God and yourself, your place in, in the world, but with, with, with people is what you're going to notice. And this is why I think it's a huge, huge, important litmus test of who we are as followers of Jesus and how we work out our relationships. I guarantee you that I'm pretty sure I'll disappoint you that people here might drop the ball and screw up. That's not the issue. The issue is what we do with it. Do we, do we value enough to, to, to fix it? To get, you know, restore that relationship? You know, after we tick each other off, do I go out of my way to make that right? You know how God point that value out? Hey, man, if you drop the ball with somebody and they have something against you, before you come to church, before your devotions, before you pray, all that, yeah, go make that right. And if you have something against somebody, you know, and they hurt you or something else has gone on here, you know what? Hey, listen, before you pray, before you go to church, before you have your devotion, go make that right because this is what I value. People, the person next to you, the person you go home with, the person you see, the person you work with, the guy, the dry cleaner, the AMPM clerk, people in France, even them, they're all made in the image of God. And that's who we're supposed to value. And I think that's probably the first indication that you've actually are stepping into light, that you see people. All right, I'm done. Father, thank you so much for being such a good God who has forgiven us of our sins and our crimes and, and uh, you help us experience life. But if that were enough, you actually then open our eyes to see the family around us, how we're part of this, the, the incredible story of humanity. Um, here's what I pray. Help us to be people who care about uh, those around us. Help us see you that we may see others. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.